Hey, everybody, this is Mark Levine, and you're listening to the NYC Real Estate Podcast. Uh, this is episode 49, and we have a, a returning guest who actually, Julie, Julie Schechter from Armstrong Teasdale, you're here with us. Welcome. I am here. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. So I, all of our podcasts, I watch the metrics, like the ones that we do together. I, you don't know this, but they're the ones that do the best. I think oh, it's because, no yeah, I mean, I like to think it's the rapport that we have, but I think it's you. I think you're the one that does it. Um, oh, so <laughs> before we get into the podcast, I just wanted to remind everybody that you could email the show um, at nycrealestatepodcast at gmail.com. That's nycrealestatepodcast at gmail.com. If you want to contact me, you can always call me directly at 212-335-2723, extension 201, um, 212-335-2723, extension 201. And today we're kind of going back to the basics. And um, I brought Julian as the partner of a law firm. And we do a little bit of business together. You, uh, We share clients. Where- More than a little bit. A little bit. It's definitely grown over the last few years. As we've gotten older together, we've also grown together with our companies, but we've known each other for a long time in this capacity. So um, it's great to have you on. And what we discussed was kind of giving a little bit of a lay of the land of what's the difference between co-ops and condos. And there's a lot of people that are purchasing apartments or they're looking to purchase apartments. They may not know the differences of each. Um, it's kind of something that we learn in when I, I got my degree in real estate many, many years ago. And that was like one of the first things that we started to learn was that difference. But it's something that a lot of people don't know. Right. Um, so coming yeah, I in- actually get asked this question all the time, especially when people are purchasing, because in New York, typically condos trade for you know, 10% higher, I would say, than a, a, a comparable cooperative apartment. And I get asked the question all the time is why? You know, right. you're looking at a building, you can't tell from the outside of the building whether it's a co-op or a condo, but condos just trade for more money. And so the question is, why do they do that? And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I'll just jump right into it, Mark. But one of the biggest reasons why they trade for more money is board oversight. So when you're purchasing an apartment um, in a co-op, the board has a different different rights um, than when you're purchasing a condominium apartment. In a cooperative, the board can reject you for any reason that's not discriminatory. So uh, that gives the board a lot of discretion to reject people. And quite frankly, a lot of people struggle to get into co-ops and don't like the board oversight. Um, Alternatively, in a condo, uh, the board doesn't have as much power. The board has what's known as a right of first refusal, which means they can't reject just because they don't want you. But what they can do uh, if they don't want you is to step into the shoes of a potential purchaser. So when you find when a owner of a condominium apartment finds a purchaser they submit an application to the board with the contract uh, with the contract of sale included in there. And if the board wants to do what's known as exercising its right of first refusal, it can step into the shoes of the purchaser and actually buy the apartment um, from the seller at the exact same price and under the same terms. So most condominiums don't have that kind of cash available in New York apartments trade for a million dollars plus. And so that would mean a condominium would have to have that much money available in order to exercise its right of first refusal. And so most condominiums don't have the ability to do that. And so it's rare in New York, which means that as long as a buyer of a condominium can show up with the money, 
the board pretty much doesn't reject you. And so that's why it's a little bit more appealing for a lot of purchasers to buy in a condominium than in a co-op where you could be rejected. Now, you talk about the right of first refusal, and we do manage a bunch of condos in the city, and there are some that actually don't even have that clause in their bylaws where they don't say upon the sale or a potential lease of a unit that the board has the right of first refusal authority. So in, in terms of percentages, what are you seeing in bylaws of buildings that you guys oversee as a law firm? Is it an even split? Is it more common that they would have the right of first refusal or is it yeah. something that, yeah. Yeah, we're seeing almost all um, of the condos have that. Um, we have a couple where it was left out of the bylaws, two of which were since amended to include it. So. I would say it's rare that it's not a right of first refusal is not included in condominium bylaws, but it's not yeah. unheard of. And it's yeah. also a good way to prevent people from doing sweetheart deals to family members or transfers below market rate. And that's really the mechanism that helps avoid that to preserve the comps in the building, right? As that's if, exactly right. Yeah. So if I'm, let's say, uh, I want to give my apartment to my sister who, um, for $100,000, but it's really worth or appraised at $500,000. If I gave that to the board, then they would be able to say, whoa, this doesn't look right. We want to step into the transaction as my sister, take her place, take the um, apartment off my hands, close the deal. And then it's up to the board at that time if they want to hold it or sell it and they can make the profit off of the market value. But I know we we jumped a little bit ahead, but... Um, why don't we talk about the differences between a co-op and a condo? In a co-op, which I'd say about 60% of my portfolio, maybe a little bit higher, 65%, but I also think that's just the makeup of New York City in general, right. because yeah, yeah, just the way that it is, co-op I mean, versus the condo. older buildings, co-ops um, came about probably in like the 1970s, uh, maybe a little bit earlier, but that's when they started to become popular. And it wasn't until you know, early 2000s, that condos really became popular. And now all of the new construction that's coming to market seems to be condos. So usually yeah. based on whether a building is a co-op or a condo, although not always, you can usually tell whether it's newer or older. The older buildings tend to be co-ops and the newer buildings tend to be condos, but that's just a generalization. It's not always true. And a lot of the buildings that turned into co-ops were actually rental buildings, back when, okay. and they converted to an offer. Correct. They had the offering plan, the red herring, the initial notice that they were going to be converting. And there were two different types of ways that um, the sponsor developer, um, the entity controlling that rental building could convert. And that was either through what was called a non-eviction plan or an eviction plan. So the way that I always remember this is the numbers are inverted. So a non-eviction plan was if only 15% of the tenants that lived there at the time of a rental building said that they wanted to purchase an apartment and then it would go into a non-eviction plan. So those people that were renting would still rent. Those people that would purchase, maybe they got an insider price at the beginning and that would start the transition over to the co-op. And then there was the eviction plan, which was 51%, which is the inverted 15 to 15, 51%. That's a good way of remembering. That's the only way I remember that. I never thought about it that way, but I like that. Yeah, it's super easy to recall. And I learned that 25 years ago and it still sticks with me. So it's really good. Um, and that was a way for them to convert while they were evicting the tenants that chose not to buy at the initial offering price, right? Um, right. 
co-ops and condos both have offering plans and those offering plans are in detail to say um, who the sponsor developer is, who, who is the attorney for those people, what the, um, the architectural report is, the, uh, the site survey, the schedule A, which lays out either the shares in each apartment or the common interest owned by each apartment. If it's a condo, we'll get into that and everything else related to the building and related to the parties. Um, and then we'll get into bylaws and all That's those right. other issues. I mean, the real purpose, all of that stuff is included in an offering plan, but the real purpose of an offering plan is a, um, to be a disclosure document. The attorney general in New York regulates um, these type of sales and the attorney general's office found it so important to let the lay person, the average buyer know exactly what they're buying. And so the offering plan is intended to disclose all of the risks that are involved with the purchase of property. Um, in fact, it, they find certain risks so important that a buyer know them that in the beginning of most offering plans, you'll see a special section called the special risk section. And there it highlights all of the most important risks that the purchaser is going to make if they buy in this building. But in addition to that, it does include all of the other things that you said. And it's pretty thick, an offering plan. Uh, yeah. So it's it's a couple hundred pages of, of fun stuff about the building. Yeah. And if you buy an apartment or you buy into a co-op, try never to lose that offering plan because you'll get hit for a few hundred hours to replicate it. Um, if you don't have it and in PDF if you form. buy a new construction condo, you should make sure that they give you back your $200 at closing because the developer promises to reimburse you. But I've yet to go to a closing where they volunteered to give you back the 200 bucks. Well, you got to remember to ask for it and nobody ever remembers. <laughs> so, all right, let's pretend we don't, I don't know about real estate. Can you explain to me what I'm buying in a co-op? Sure. So a co-op is like a corporation. It's run the same way and under the same laws as Apple or Microsoft, which is kind of odd and not exactly fitting uh, to run a residential apartment building under corporate law, but that's how they're run. Um, and just like you would get shares in Apple, you get shares in this cooperative building, which means at closing, you're given a stock certificate uh, with the number of shares that you've purchased and also what's called a proprietary lease. And instead of owning real property, what you own are the shares and the lease and they're allocated, they give, they're allocated to a certain apartment, which gives you the right to live in that apartment. Um, and everybody owns shares in the whole corporation. In a condo, it's a little bit different. You do own real property. When you purchase an apartment, you're given a deed to that property, just like you would if you bought a house. Um, and uh, then you own it outright. You also, as a condominium owner, own a certain percentage of the common interest, which means a certain percentage of the common areas that all of the unit owners own jointly. So an example of a common area would be the lobby. Um, everybody owns it. Uh, if you own a condominium unit, you also own a percentage of all of the common areas. So it's a little bit different between co-ops and condos. Co-ops right. are kind of a New York thing. So when you tell people you own shares that are allocated to your apartment, if you tell somebody outside of New York State that, it's usually pretty confusing because yeah. pretty much everywhere else in the country, people who own property have a deed. Um, but it's just a wonderful quirk that makes New York, New York. So in a condo, I have a deed. I have the exclusive right to use my real property that I own, but I also own a percentage of the common interest. That's right. 
when I'm in a co-op, I own shares of the corporation. Um, the corporation itself owns the entirety of the structure. You don't own a portion of the lobby in this case, but you said before, but the proprietary lease is the tool that I have. It's the paperwork that I have that enables me to live in my unit for a set period of time. And the set period of time is really the expiration of the proprietary lease because every proprietary lease, it starts on the day that you buy it or purchase the shares, and then it expires that they all expire at the same time. So we have to be really careful when we're managing a property to make sure that the proprietary lease expiration date isn't too soon because banks want their collateral to, you know, be there when the expiration of the proprietary lease occurs. So even if you're 30 years or so out, that's still too soon. So we're seeing a lot yeah. of, right? We're seeing a that's lot of proprietary. Exactly right. Most yeah. most conventional loans are based on a 30 year amortization period. Even if you have a 10, you know, a 10 year adjustable rate mortgage, you know, or a seven year adjustable rate, put the rate aside, the way they amortize the loans is based on a 30 year um period and so banks don't want to see a proprietary lease expire within 30 years because their collateral is the stock and lease um so it's important for co-ops to make sure that their expiration date is at least uh, of the lease is at least beyond 30 years um but with a vote of the shareholders the ex the expiration date could be easily extended and so Boards just need to stay on top of it and make sure that the di expiration date is far enough out that you don't get too close to that 30 year period. So when I'm in a co-op, I have a lot of restrictions. The proprietary lease is creating a landlord tenant relationship with the cooperative corporation, right? That's right. So when I don't, let's say when I am in default of my obligations, which it's the lease is telling me what I'm responsible for as a shareholder versus what the co-op corporation is responsible for as the corporation. And that could be how my um, maintenance is fixed, how my, what repairs my responsibility, how any number of things. And a lot of rent, I've, I've found that a lot of renters that come in and buy into a co-op they don't understand this whole proprietary lease situation of what's my responsibility versus what's the co-op's responsibility. Um, typically things that are inside of your apartment or your responsibility and from the walls outwards, that's the co-op. Sometimes that could change, but that's typically that's it. more or less the way it goes. Yeah. Yeah. But I find that a lot of, there is a lot of education needed when people are coming from rentals because they just assume that everything should be taken care of by the corporation. So it's a little bit of handholding. Um, I, I don't have that proprietary lease when I'm in a condo. So instead of a proprietary lease, I have the bylaws, which, right. which will say not only what the board's obligations are to the unit owners and how they are voted in, how long their terms are, um, how they're allowed to fix the common charges. It's common charges um, in condo. It's maintenance charges in a co-op. Um, but in a lot of- to the rent. That's what you call it. That's the that's the real estate lingo for what Correct. you call the rent. And it's yeah. up, it's it's maintenance, and in a condo, it's common charges. But it's basically all as yeah. the terms for rent, right? Yeah, and they they both also lay both bylaws will also lay out um, how rent is determined, how maintenance or common charges, just as you said, how assessments are given the how the board has the authority for levying assessments and other charges. Um, it gives them the authority to make the house rules and set the house rules, but the house rules can't step on 
the offering plan documents, like the proprietary lease or the bylaws. So, right. right. So, so there are certain, there are certain rules that are so, um, that are valued differently, that they are so inherent to your rights as a property owner, and they're deemed so important that they can't be only in the house rules. Both co-ops and condos have a set of house rules, which really focus on day-to-day life in the building. So for example, rules about what you can leave in the hallways, what you can't leave in the hallways, ways to decorate your door, you know, whether or not you can, you know, play in the hallways or hang things off of your terrace, all of those stuff, um, all that stuff is included in the house rules in both co-ops and condos, but other things like the right to find um, shareholders or unit owners, um, because it's going to have a financial impact on the people in the building, courts have held that that type of language is so important that we can't just give the board the right to um, create those type of rules and to enforce them. Instead, those type of rules would have to be in the condominiums bylaws or in the co-op's proprietary lease because there are different ways that those type of rules get implemented. So for example, in both a co-op and a condo, house rules can be implemented or modified or deleted by the board itself. Just a majority of the board can get that done um, because those are just simpler day-to-day rules with less of an impact on your life as a unit owner or a shareholder in the building. Um, but finding, for example, um, since that needs to be in the condominiums bylaws, the right of a board to find, I should say, a shareholder or unit owner for violating the rules, um, that would need to be in the condominiums bylaws or in the corporation's proprietary lease. Um, and in order to amend those, although most condominium bylaws, the right to find uh, unit owners is already in there, in co-ops, it's not in the standard form of proprietary lease. So if you want to have the, if the board wants to have the ability to find shareholders for violating the lease, uh, that would usually require an amendment of the proprietary lease. And in most leases, you'll see it takes 66 and two thirds percent of the shareholders to vote in favor of it. Um, And so all of those rules that are deemed to be too important to be in the house rules Uh, The reason that they need to be in the proprietary lease is most amendments for a proprietary lease require a supermajority of shareholders. And so the courts figure if if you can dig up a supermajority of people who agree with this rule, then you can implement it. And that takes some of the power away from the board um, so they can't be too draconian to the people who live in the building. And that's actually true on a lot of normal things that would happen in a co-op, but in a condo where... If the board needs to undertake a project of a certain amount of money, or if they want to take out a loan um, to um, pay for something that they have on deck, the board and a co-op will traditionally have the ability to do that on their own. But usually the bylaws in a condo say that they have to get unit owner approval for both of those things. They don't want to encumber the building for those yeah, amounts. That's exactly, that's exactly right. Um when you look at some of the older condominium bylaws, that threshold number that the board needs to um, get unit owner consent before they exceed that number in either a loan or a capital improvement, those numbers were very low. It was mm-hmm. like $50,000 or something. But anybody- I've who, seen some at 10,000. So, yeah, they were so low. But anybody who lives or works in New York knows you don't get anything done for $10,000. So um, yeah. some of the newer condominium 
um, bylaws, you're seeing that threshold number um, getting higher and higher, but still, um, you're right that if the board wants to take out a loan or, um, you know, enter into certain projects that exceed that, that threshold amount, they need to go to the unit owners for consent. Although there is an exception if you um, read closely the language in most bylaws does have exception for required repairs. So there's a distinction between um, like an upgrade of the lobby, for example, versus right. um, like a facade repair, yeah. a facade repair. Exactly. Yeah. Um, now that we bring up loans, when you're in a co-op, co most co-ops have an underlying mortgage on the entire building. Um, and that is something that is paid for by share allocation uh, by the shareholders. And right. one of the benefits of that is that at the year end, you get a tax deduction letter. So you can write off a portion of that mortgage and the mortgage interest um, yearly. It depends on the loan, depends on a lot of factors, but the accountant for the co-op will issue that letter in January for the year prior so that you can use that for, to file your taxes. Um, in a condo, it's a lot harder. You don't have a mortgage on the underlying building because technically each unit owner owns their own individual real property and a percentage of the common area. But I have seen condos get loans that are based on um, the collateral would be the accounts receivables, or if there's a supers apartment that has common interest, they may use that as collateral. Maybe not collateral is the right word, but they'll-, yeah, no, they'll Collateral is the right word. That's yeah. exactly right. So um, yeah, extra points. Well done. Um, <laughs> that's, that's exactly right, Mark. So in a co-op, um, the entire building is on a single tax lot. Um, which means that the board has the ability to take a loan on the entire building. Um, in a condominium, all of the units are on separate lots. And so the board can't take a loan on the whole building because it, it, there's too many lots. There could be yeah. 30, 50, 100 lots on the same, in the same building. And so it's not possible to take a loan in the same way that you would in a co-op. So Mark's right. Most co-ops have a loan on the whole building called an underlying mortgage. Um, in a condo, if you want to do that, most buildings don't have any form of loan. If the board got desperate for funds, um, or you know, some of them have it on the supers unit, um, but if the building got desperate for funds, one way that they can do it is something called a CIRA loan, which is not that popular. Um, but the way it works is the, the banks a lot of banks don't even offer this type of um, loan because unlike having collateral as real property, which is, you know, less risky and, you know, very unrisky in New York because property values are so high, but um, it's a, it's an easier loan and a less risky loan to give um, a loan on real property. The kind of loans that you get in a condo are on future, exactly what Mark said, accounts receivable. So if the condominium were to default on a loan that they had with the bank on this type of CIRA loan, the bank could come in and collect future common charges to pay off the debt. Um, it's a riskier loan. A lot of banks don't like to do it. There's only a handful in the city that do it. And it's not that common in, in condominiums at all. That's kind of similar to a rider that we put into lease applications where it says if the unit owner stops paying their common charges, then we have the right to go to the to, sub, to the tenant directly for that to, to repay until they're back to even. So it's like taking the money from the, the revenue source yeah. to pay off the debt. That's, that's exactly right. And, and that um, 
is also included in the real property law that you have the right 339 KK. Uh, it's yeah. one of my personal favorite sections of the real property law. <laughs> um, it just, I'm just kidding, but it comes up so often in our practice. Um, so yeah. if somebody does own a unit in a condo and they're not paying, but they have a tenant in there, the board has the right to go to the tenant and say, pay, pay what you would be paying your landlord, uh, pay to us directly. Mm-hmm. In- so when I'm on when I'm on a board and uh, this is part of the problem of buying into a co-op is if they could turn you down for any reason, right? Well, no, they can't turn you down for any reason. I won't say that they can any turn you that's down. Not discriminatory, right? But they don't have to give a reason. That's what I was saying. That's that's correct, and that right. uh, you know the legislature in New York every year toys with passing some sort of regulation that says that they're going to have to give a reason or. You know, it's, I it's, think in Westchester, it recently I, changed. I think you're right. I yeah. think you're right. Um, I think it did change in Westchester, but it's kind of crazy that a board could just reject you and not give any sort of explanation for the rejection. Yeah. Uh, but that's the way it always has been in New York. And for whatever reason, that's the way yeah. it seems to be staying. So the only real good reason for a building to deny somebody is truly based on financial. You know, if the right. financials aren't there, there's no discriminatory uh, action there. It's purely I can't afford to, to have this person in the building who who may or may not be able to pay the maintenance. That would put an undue burden on everybody else. And it may cause the building if there's enough people like that or enough of a debt to actually have to take on another loan, which is more debt for the building to cover the arrears of this person. So I understand that. And I always tell the board. If you're not comfortable with them financially, you don't even interview them because That's, I, I, I say it every day and it's worth reiterating. Um, when you interview somebody, you see their face and you know what nationality they are and you know what age they are and you know what gender they are. And you're just opening yourself up to a discrimination claim if you wind up rejecting that person. Correct. And so I beg boards, yeah. if you're not happy with the financial package that the potential purchaser has presented, reject them, reject them and do not interview them because once you've interviewed them and you've seen who they are, it gives them a better opportunity to prevail on a discrimination claim. And the board doesn't need that. So the best way to insulate yourself, if you think you're going to reject the person is to reject them before you interview. And there's so many classes, we're not going to get into it, but there's so many classes of discrimination in federal and also by state. And I'm sure New York City. Um, and New York City's list is even longer than federal and state. New York yeah. City's list that's is crazy. crazy. And that's where we're at. That's what we're talking about. So that's right. Yeah. So I always tell boards if you're also if you're in an interview, really try to avoid questioning about much. Just say, "Tell me about yourself." And that if you say, "Tell me about yourself," and they're like, "Oh, I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm into this, I'm into that," you know, that right. gives the person is now spilling their beans themselves you're not leading questioning to certain you know uh, that's exactly right i always i always joke around um that when i bought i live in a co-op now when i bought um our apartment we went to the interview my husband and i and we sit down and the first question that the interviewer asked us was so tell us about yourselves are you guys married do you have kids and like just touched upon five protective classes asked a compound question none of which was appropriate but Luckily, I'm easygoing and there was, you know, we got accepted and no issues there. But um, 
you know, I probably should hint to them that they shouldn't be asking leading questions like that because it could get them in trouble in the future. Especially now that you're a shareholder and you have an interest in that. That's right. I, I really should. You should. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that doesn't apply. Oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say, it's funny that you mentioned um, boards rejected people who didn't have good finances because this is going off on a little bit of a tangent, but in 2019, New York State, New York City passed um, what's called the Tenant Protection Act. Um, and this act was intended to um, protect tenants in leases. Um, and it was meant to be in rental situations, but I think inadvertently also included cooperatives. Um, it affected co-ops in many, many ways, but probably the biggest that we saw in our practice was people who would submit applications to live in a co-op, but who were financially either questionable or marginal, and the boards didn't know whether or not to accept them. You know, they looked like they probably had enough money, or they were right on the fringe, or they had earning potential. Boards were able to ask for what's known as a maintenance escrow to give themselves comfort and a person who had marginal finances. So for example, you would say, we'll accept you, but you have to give us one or two years maintenance and we'll hold it in escrow to give ourselves protection in case you are unable to pay in the future. What with the Tenant Protection Act, when that was passed in 2019, it prevented boards from being able to take more than one month's maintenance upfront. And so maintenance escrows were out of the question. Um, which was problematic for co-ops and actually had the opposite effect that the legislature hoped for because, because co-ops weren't able to give themselves the extra protection of a maintenance escrow. Instead, they were just rejecting people with marginal finances. And so the tenants who it was supposed to protect actually found themselves getting rejected from co-ops more than before the law was passed. But the reason I mention it is because in exciting news, um, in December 2021, which was just a few weeks ago, uh, the legislature um, exempted co-ops from certain provisions of the Tenant Protection Act, which one of which was yeah. the right to take more than one month's maintenance up front. So the good news is maintenance escrows are back. People with marginal finances can get into <laughs> co-ops again, uh, and all is right with the world. So the co-op community was very happy to see uh, to see those new laws come down a few weeks ago. I think I covered this on if if you if you're listening and you go back to episode 45, which was like, or if you're just a super fan and know it all, <laughs> I know it. <laughs> I don't know. Hopefully, we've had other people listening to more than one. That'd be great. Um, I think that I did that on December 31st. I did like a year in review, and I think that was one of the points that I made. And it was also important for us because we were we were handcuffed with credit check um, being twenty dollars. When we were out of pocket, because it costs more for us than $20 to do a credit check on uh, somebody that's applying. So now we can reimburse ourselves through that person, you know, what it costs us, which is great. And there's a lot of other things. And if anybody wants to read more um, about uh, the provisions that were now exempted for co-ops from the Tenant Protection Act, uh, my firm drafted an advisory, which we circulated to all of our clients and and managing agents like Mark, but it's available on our website, armstrongteesdale.com. So you can go check it out if you want to read more about it. And I'll put a link to that in the description of the podcast also. So people could, yeah, could hit it. Um, Okay. So we've talked about the board. We've talked about the bylaws, the proprietary lease, just in the co-op, the difference between shares. We've talked about general common interest. Um, 
bylaws are also going to show the, I think we may have said it before, but how the board operates, when the board turns over, how elections are conducted, how the board meets. Um, now there was a law that came about, I know it was for co-ops, I believe, for, for remote annual meetings to be legal. So you don't have to have it referenced in your bylaws, but it was a business corporate, a New York state business corporation law, right? That's that, right. That's and right. that was last so, year. That was last year. That was a pandemic related uh, rule because um, it was a really big issue. So in both co-ops and condos, well, in condos, um, the bylaws usually state that the meeting should be held, the annual meeting should be held at X and it's either a place within the county, the city of New York, or at the principal place of business of the condominium or whatever. But the point is that it said that the meeting should take place at a physical location. And um, inherently that language would not permit a Zoom meeting, which was problematic during the pandemic because uh, the city prevented meetings of people. At first it was more than 10, then it grew to 20 and then 50, but either way, most condominiums have more than that number. And so there was a, pr a predicament, what do we do? Our bylaws are requiring a physical place, but New York City is not allowing physical meetings. And so most condominiums just did virtual anyway. And, you know, it violated the bylaws, but it was a necessary violation that- Yeah, I mean, if somebody's, gonna know, if somebody's gonna complain to the Secretary of State for that, right, I don't think it's really- Right, I don't, right, exactly. Yeah. And as far as I know, no court cases were ever filed because I think logic prevailed in that case, which is surprising because it doesn't always, but yeah. in this case, I think it did. Um, but the business corporation law, which is the law that all co-ops in New York, you know, uh, fall under, they actually amended that to make sure that these uh, Zoom virtual meetings would be legal. Uh, my firm also wrote an advisory on that. I'll give you the link, Mark, and you can link that one too. Thank but um, the business corporation law always allowed for meetings where everybody could hear one another. So conference call meetings were always allowed, um, but it extended uh, it to virtual meetings, Zoom meetings, so that there was no question, even if the bylaws didn't allow for it, this new amendment to the business corporation law did. Yeah. Uh, and it's been it's been a godsend. I've yeah, it's operated. Been and quite I, frankly, I don't know that boards are going back, that buildings are going to go back to in-person meetings. I hope um, not. We're getting. Yeah, I kind of hope not, too. But yeah. we're getting much better attendance rates mm -hmm. with people. You know, some buildings where we were never able to get a quorum, we're suddenly, you know, getting it because people are coming in on Zoom. Even people who don't live in the building in condos, which is fairly common. Um yeah, we especially we're, where we never did yeah. before. And we're doing so many ballot every Zoom meeting we have, we're doing digital ballots. So we have it's so easy now for us to just make a spreadsheet, just tabulate all the votes and make sure everything is correct. We can have the votes ready within the half hour where well, your I mean, company is extra tech savvy. Yeah, but we me and you specifically have sat in boardrooms yes, after in-person annual meetings before uh, COVID and taken an hour and a half of our life to count double and count, you can never count. Get that. yeah <laughs> and now you don't have to do that so it's great counting even, paper ballots yeah and even in the case where i have a inspector of election who is a shareholder or a unit owner that doesn't you know isn't running for the board will just 
the next day we'll close the vote and the next day we'll, sh we'll share my zoom. Uh, we'll do a zoom. We'll share my screen. They could see everything I'm inputting on the spreadsheet and how it was tabulated and they can verify that I was doing it correctly. So they get to be um, in a place where they're feeling comfortable and do it on their time schedule. We don't have to be pressured for time. It's great. It really is. Great. It's, it's the new great. way. That's it. It's the new way. And I'm hoping it sticks. Yeah. Are there any major differences other than that? I mean, obviously, uh, real estate taxes are something that's going to be paid by a co-op because it's the, you know, the taxes on that block and lot, right. but the individuals of a condo pay their own real estate taxes. Um, water and sewer still hits everybody if it's a shared meter. Um insurance, you know, there's a lot of costs that are going to be the same for not the same, but they're going to be allocated towards either the corporation or the condominium association. Um, those are the things that we budget for. But in terms of differences that we haven't covered, is there anything out there that is materially important for people to know what the difference is? Oh, let's just gloss over. Um, if a shareholder doesn't pay maintenance, we then have the proprietary lease that steps in and says, okay, here's the, um, here's the workflow for if we need to go after a shareholder who is not paying maintenance to pay their maintenance. Um, that's typically you sending a demand letter, right? And then if that's not answered, then we move ahead to landlord tenant court. But this has all gone through a little bit of a COVID bump because we're really not attending court unless it's for an emergency that's shut down. And the courts were closed for a really long time. They didn't want to be hearing about non-payment proceedings. And for, for periods of time, there was moratorium on rent payments, which just complicated things. And now the courts are so backlogged that it's a, it's a real problem in co-ops. In condos, it works a little bit differently um, because you can file a lien on a unit owner's apartment who isn't paying. Um, liens are very inexpensive to file. Um, they're very quick. They could be filed in a day. And this will help cloud the title of the unit owner. So it means if they were going to refinance or sell, it would be problematic for them. And it's a good way. Uh, it's a good, fast, inexpensive way for a condo board to collect uh, common charges that are in arrears from a right. unit owner who wants to have the lien removed. So right. as soon as they pay back the money, we can also quickly and inexpensively remove the lien. So it's a great tool that you have for condos that you don't have for co-ops. And even if it doesn't get caught by a, a title search for some reason, we have to, in 99.9%, .9 we get asked for a common charge letter um, prior right. to closing. So we will put that full amount on the common charge letter, which means that they won't be able to close until that's satisfied to a zero dollar balance. Right. Um, and the same goes with a co-op, but we control it a little bit better with a co-op because either your firm or somebody like your firm is doing the closing on behalf of the co-op as a transfer agent, or we're doing it as a transfer agent. It could go either way, but I know that if my, I'm doing the transfers and my system is showing there's any balance, I am not giving over that new um, stock certificate to the new purchaser until that is settled. Um, That's right. Did we and talk in about- the case of a condo, um, if there's no common charges paid letter, most uh, title companies won't close. So because it's real property in a condo, a title company uh, is involved in the closing and they won't close unless yeah. the common charges are paid and you get a clean letter. 
So the last thing I think I could think of is that when you close on a co-op, this is the big difference between a co-op and a condo, you get um, one stock certificate. We typically sign two proprietary leases. And if you have a mortgage on that property, not at, this doesn't apply if you're paying cash outright, the bank will hold the stock, the original, and one proprietary lease original, and they will consider that the collateral for the apartment that you're purchasing. And they'll do their best not to lose it between when you purchase and when you sell. Yeah, <laughs> but if they do lose it and you need they it, do lose it, they should pay for the replacement because it's their fault. And I'm yeah. happy to provide that at cost, no problem. Like for yeah. our cost, we have that built into our contract. So that's just easy money for us because the bank's unfortunately screw up all the time. Right. Yeah. Um, if you are purchasing it on your own and you don't have a bank, then you keep the stock and lease originals. Um, there's also a recognition. And you should try not to lose it. <laughs> you should try not to lose it. I would hate for you to have to pay us money. Um, the recognition agreement. Do you want to go over that since I just spitballed on that? Uh, yeah, sure. A recognition sure. agreement is a contract between uh, the lender, the co-op, um, and the shareholder. Whenever you take a, a loan, it's not called a mortgage in a co-op, it's called a share loan, but it's essentially the same thing as a mortgage. It's a loan on your individual unit. You enter into a recognition agreement, which basically states um, the rights that each party has in comparison to one another. So, um, there's a standard form in New York called the Blumberg form. It's an Aztec, Aztec form. Um, and this is required whenever uh, a purchaser takes out a share loan in a co-op. And this basically tells the, us as the managing agent also that if the shareholder falls behind on their maintenance or if they're looking to sell or at least their, well, I guess it's sublease their apartment out, we have to give them notice first. So when we're doing right. one of the common questions from your firm would be um, who would send us a copy of the recognition agreement, because if they are so grossly in arrears, we could contact the bank. And a lot of time the bank, in order to preserve their collateral, would pay the balance of what's owed directly to the co-op and then go after the shareholder on their own. Right. Right. So that's really an important tool. Um, on the condo side, the lien filing, it puts uh, the condo in a position, maybe not in first position behind the mortgage, but if there are any secondary loans, we get second position. Before the secondary loan, right. Right. Um, so I think we've covered everything that I wanted to cover. I mean, that's a pretty good primer on the difference between co-ops and condos. There's a lot of information about the difference between co-ops and condos. If you've lasted this long in the <laughs> podcast, you should be an expert at this point. I think if they lasted this long, we should give out our Venmo and they can tip us for the information. But <laughs> now I'll leave that for next time. Tips are welcome. Yeah. So um, I'm going to leave all of your contact information down below in the description. And I know that we continue to do these. Well, we'll see. We'll see if people want to hear this. I mean, it's pretty boring, but it's great stuff for me and you. I don't know. Keep, people seem to like it. Keep the lights on. Um, <laughs> well, cool. Well, Julie, thank you so much for coming on. It's always Thanks a pleasure. Thanks for having me. As always, Mark, always a pleasure. I enjoy not only doing podcasts with you, but also working with you on, on clients and the our clients. Is mutual. And one I, of these days, I hope to see you in person. One of these uh, days. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see when COVID's over. Okay. All right.
But to everybody, uh, again, email the show at nycrealestatepodcast.gmail.com. Feel free to reach out to me at 212-335-2723, extension 201. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Take care. Thanks, Julie. Thanks. Bye-bye.